Welcome to Nutritank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millennials, coddled entitled, narcissistic, work shy and bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. If you enjoyed today's episode on the podcast, then please subscribe to the rest of the podcast. Share it with your friends, family and colleagues. Give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a kind review. It will really help with Nutritank's mission to be the leading hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. everyone, it's your host Ali Jaffe and welcome to today's episode on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. I'm so delighted to introduce today's guest, Dr Uma Naidu, who has been described as a triple threat. She is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, a professional chef and nutrition specialist. Her niche work is in nutritional psychiatry and she's regarded both nationally and internationally as a medical pioneer in this more newly recognised field. She's featured in the Wall Street Journal, ABC News, Harvard Health Press and many others. And Dr Uma has been working very hard on her latest book, This Is Your Brain on Food, which is the USA title, or The Food Mood Connection, which is the UK title. Having read her book in one sitting and covered it in scribble from page to page, I can honestly say that for those interested in the relationship between food and mood, order it right now. If not for the cutting-edge science explaining the ways in which food contributes to our mental health, then get it for Uma's recipes. The book has been named a bestseller in Canada already. So, good evening, Dr Uma, or good afternoon to you over in Boston. I just wanted to say a huge thank you for coming on the podcast, and I've been dying to chat to you because... As you know, as I've told you previously, I'm an aspiring nutritional psychiatrist and having just finished your book and I read it in one sitting, I can honestly say I'm very excited for this conversation. So huge warm welcome to you. Can you just say hi to our audience and introduce yourself? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. And hi, Ali. Thank you so much for hosting me and inviting me. Um, my name is Dr. Uma Naidu, and I actually work in Boston in the United States um, as the Director of Nutritional Lifestyle Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital um, and on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. Brilliant. So we're going to dive straight in. Let's start right at the beginning where you can tell our audience why you decided to pursue a career in psychiatry and what inspired you at medical school to go down this particular path. I think it started um, really, I, 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 firstly, I, would, I, I have to admit, and I, I've said in, in, at several places that I've spoken, I wish I could share that it was some kind of uh, designed plan, but it really happened very organically by following things that I love to do and my interests. Um, I come from a very large South Asian family and uh, food and nurturance as well as medicine were all very big parts of how I was raised. 
Uh, so a very large family of doctors, um, also healthy eating, but also delicious food. So um, in addition to never being really expected to cook because there were always mothers, grandmothers, aunts, and older cousins in the kitchen, I was always just surrounded by that uh, and really didn't learn how to cook until later in life. But when I did learn, I uh, had moved uh, far away from my family to study in Boston. And what I could take with me were my mom's recipes, the family recipes, and my spices. And I found that mindfulness became a really big part of my day through cooking. Um, but having known that I should be a healthy eater uh, from from the background of my family, I incorporated that as well and realized that there was a real gap in how to understand nutrition. Um, there have been, you know, there's been a lot of research written about the gaps in medical school education for nutrition worldwide. And um, so I, I began having these conversations as I was not only studying, but, but starting to work with patients. Um, and started to make the connections and really learn on my own about what they could be doing differently. I think one of the things that concerned me was that there were lots of side effects regarding the psychotropic medications I was studying about. Um, and I felt that if I was going to be a psychiatrist and I was going to be prescribing those medications, I felt like my patients would need other tools to feel better. And part of that comes from really a holistic background of how I was raised, uh, Ayurvedic practitioners in the family, uh, medical doctors, and, and uh, use those types of practices that I was raised with. Um, and that really led me to, to pursue that path and just include the, this in that conversation with patients. Uh, the trip to culinary school was really just, that was an act of passion on, uh, based on the fact that I'm a huge um, Julia Child fan. And <laughs> when I was first learning to cook, she gave me immense confidence because she was on public television here. And still is actually, there's a series that they still run. And uh, that time, uh, was you know early on in, in my career and you know we couldn't afford uh, a cable television so she would be on public television and be tossing omelets and dropping things and be incredibly entertaining um, but when I read her cookbooks I realized how you know what a brilliant person she was and how detail-oriented she was I really understood that she did this later in life and it inspired me to um, to follow that path uh, and she was a patron of the school that I studied in and really uh, was that was one of the best best times of my life going to culinary school because I really felt um, felt that connection to food and and realized that there were so many so many things I didn't know and wanted to know and um, so really the, the this is a very long story but mm. first the first point is that it didn't come with planning and the second is that I followed things that I loved to do and they came together in a very natural way uh, for me uh, in the work that I do every day and I'm, I feel very fortunate um, you know to to be at that point. It all sounds very serendipitous and I think all amazing careers <laughs> come unplanned <laughs> and True. True. so tell us how how did your colleagues in psychiatry receive your interest in the nutrition world what did they say when you first started telling them about the amazing research that you discovered and the joys and passions that you got from cooking and how it can benefit patients? Did you have mixed mixed views, some some skeptics, I, some not? 
Yeah, you know, I think that I think that people uh, don't necessarily practice in a way that they include nutrition in their everyday evaluations. And I think that um, I was fortunate to have really great mentorship in the hospital where I work. Um, and when I brought my my interests forward and explained, you know, that I was using this model and really working with people this way, I um, was given the opportunity to found this clinical service. And uh, I feel very fortunate in that way that it, it's it's gotten some traction and has gotten a lot of interest. Um, but I, I can't say that it's all mainstream in the sense mm. that everyone is practicing this way. Uh, there, there's a, I have a lot of wonderful colleagues who not only send me referrals, but really want to learn more and collaborate with me. And others that don't necessarily feel that it's mainstream yet, but they're not offended, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I feel grateful for that. And I feel um, humbled about the fact that this is a way, one way to practice and it happens to be a way that I feel um, has developed very strongly and has served certainly the patients that I've treated. But there, there are many paths to to wellness. And, you know, I, I still practice allopathic medicine. I still believe in prescribing medications because medications have saved the lives of several of my patients. But at the same time, I do think that uh, it's not a linear path. I think mm-hmm. that wellness and feeling emotionally um better or emotional well-being can be reached in in many different ways and they can work together in a, in, in in a holistic and complementary way absolutely so you're the director of the nutritional and lifestyle psychiatry um unit at massachusetts general hospital in boston could you just tell us how you went about uh, setting it up and being such a trailblazer in this area and if there are any similar things going on in other hospitals across the usa i um i'm not sure about other hospitals i know that uh, we were the first to found such a clinic and um again you know you mentioned the word serendipitously i think that it it came from speaking to my mentors, sharing with them what I was doing, um, writing uh, a lot of blogs, uh, certainly for Harvard Health, and uh, really being interested in the work, sharing it with patients and seeing what they what, what we could do on in a nutritional uh, psychiatry treatment plan way to help their symptoms. Um, and when the opportunity arose to, to start this, I... Uh, I thought, why not? You know, uh, if if I can if, if I can be supported to do it, uh, I think it's a great idea. So I leapt right in and decided that uh, you know, as with all other things in my life, it it was uh, some it's just like going to culinary school. You know, on, on a particular day, as I was filling out my application, I wasn't quite sure how I was going to fit that those number of hours into that number of years while doing this amount of work. Um, mm. And I, you know, thinking mathematically, I couldn't quite figure out that calculation. And on the day that I was completing my application, um, something changed in my schedule. It was very serendipitous and which literally allowed me to move things around that I could still be responsible for my clinic, um, help out my colleagues in a certain way. They would help me. And it opened up a certain, it opened up in a certain way that I could study. So some sometimes it's um, sometimes it's serendipitous. Maybe mm. it's um, maybe it was meant to be. I'm I'm not quite sure. Exactly. But it, it 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 was very much like that. I had the opportunity, 
had the right conversations at the right times and it was like, mm. well, this is apparently this is meant to happen. So. And it's now your calling, which is, yeah, wonderful. <laughs> it's become very much what I do, absolutely. And so are there others of you? I know of Drew Ramsey in New York. Um, are there others of you that work together, nutritional psychiatrists, to perhaps you know, implement greater nutrition education into psychiatry pro- um, training programs? Is there anything, any work like that going on? You know, um, I, Drew and I kind of like almost like siblings in this because we, I, I, I'm not familiar with other people practicing this way. I know there's an immense, and I'm very excited by an immense amount of outreach and interest from medical students, from um, college students, uh, as well as um, re- residents in psychiatry to want to learn more. So I really feel like there'll be an opportunity to bring this forward in a different format. And I think part of it is um, how we do that. Mm-hmm. Because in the UK, we've got a similar situation, I think, to the States where there's a large gap in our education um, when it comes to nutrition at medical school. And actually myself and my team at Nutritank were recently involved in a British medical journal paper called Time for Nutrition in Medical Education, where we got surveys from different uh, UK medical students and doctors around nutrition in medical education. And most agreed that it was important and it was a role that a doctor should have. But the salient uh, factor as to why they didn't feel confident was due to a lack of knowledge rather than a lack of time, uh-huh. which simply highlights that if a systemic change were to be made in medical education and more emphasis was put on nutrition education, then the knowledge would come um, when you know students graduate and become doctors and they would be able to practice it in their everyday life so I wanted to just get your views on that and if you can tell us a bit about the kind of general situation um, of nutrition education in American medical schools as well as training programs so you know I think that that we know that um, more medical schools and not in the United States still have that gap Um, they certainly try to incorporate nutrition into the curriculum um, we have done a lot of electives and uh, additional teaching um, through programming at, at Harvard Medical School, certainly part of the curriculum. Uh, but I think it could grow on in many medical schools. But then there are other medical schools within the United States which have culinary medicine, have teaching kitchens, and are very impressive in terms of what they've set up. Mm. So I, th- I would hope that more um, with appropriate funding and maybe, maybe the right curriculum, that more of that would start to happen uh, in a slow and steady way um, in all of the medical schools. So mm-hmm. we, we do know it's a gap. And one of the reasons that some of the electives that I've worked with um, at, at our medical school have been so popular is for exact reason that you're pointing out, Ali, that students who are coming into the profession know that they want to be able to have conversations with patients clinically and that to do that, they have to be uh, really armed with the appropriate information and they're seeking it. You know, they're very interested in it as mm-hmm. well. So I can only hope that over time, those efforts will continue and ramp up and um, mm-hmm. uh, that that it will be much more a component than it is in our, in our medical schools here. Off and on until COVID hit when, you know, we weren't able to do things in person. That then evolved into trying to think about ways that um, our students could really form a sense of community because our first years are virtual. And uh, this evolved with 
discussions uh, with more senior faculty to really put together an online class which would bring students together. So uh, it, it's it's a little bit tiring because they do a lot of classes online, but mm-hmm. we've done um, a few classes so far with COVID and it's a food, food is medicine uh, curriculum and it's uh, part of an elective. So they're not obligated to come but we've had uh, a lot of strong interest and and I think you know there are that's wonderful that we're doing it we have mm. a nutritional science component I actually teach it with uh, a younger colleague of mine who's a nutritional science and neurometabolic PhD researcher who is just graduating from Oxford um, mm-hmm. virtually and is actually <laughs> going to be an M1 at medical school next year, Nicholas Norwitz. And so we've been doing it together and it's been great. So we do a, a lecture component and then we do a culinary, um, we do a cooking component. And what we really try to emphasize is healthy recipes um, through this through this curriculum. As, so, so taking things that they might love to eat and making it in a healthy way so they still have the pleasure of having something delicious but also know the nutrition science behind it and how to um, how to implement it. Um, so we're hoping that that grows and develops and um, it's, it's been exciting. I do think it's very different to do it online um, compared to being mm. in the kitchen together. So completely and it would be amazing for it to become mainstream you know not just part of an elective but part of you know the entire medical course that undergraduates or postgraduates in the states do because otherwise you're you're i i have this thing where you know i'm so interested in nutrition so i pick all the nutrition related electives and special choice Mm -hmm. modules that i can do but you want to be able to target as many medical students as possible um, so yeah, I'm overly optimistic about it that it will become mainstream within the curricula, just as anatomy classes are. You know, I, we certainly are hopeful, uh, but but I think mm. it takes slow and steady building, and also, um, you know, when something is is um, is optional, students we always have a huge sign up, mm-hmm. but it, but by the evening people are exhausted you know we understand if uh, if from our huge sign up list uh, some some students are able to come but again we're only in our second in our second class because we try to not make it too frequent so that it's um both the social community hour but really has education built in and right now we're doing it once a month so Mm. we'll see We, we we certainly are hopeful that uh that that it'll take on but slow and steady exactly well let's talk about your wonderful book i honestly read it in one sitting and it's completely doodled all over as i showed you before we started (laughs) and i just learned so much so um for those who haven't read it it's called the food mood connection in the uk um and remind me of what it's called in the states in the in the um united states it's called this is your brain on food um, it's uh, published uh, here and in Canada and other countries um, as This Is Your Brain in Food and in um, about, uh, right now about 10 different languages that are happening at different stages okay. at the moment. Um, but in the UK, South Africa, uh, India, and I think Australia has some copies as well, um, it is being sold as the Food World Connection. So same content, just a different name. Sure. And so tell our listeners why you decided to split it up into the uh, different psychiatric conditions and structure it in this very unique way. 
I thought about what message I wanted to bring forward and what seemed to be um, extremely important. The the book arose from the, the writing a book came from the fact that uh, as I was blogging um, in educational publications and and media, reaching out. Uh, through my clinic to ask for more information. Um, I was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal in 2018, and the article I was interviewed for went viral. And what what we understood from that um, newspaper article was that people really had a hunger for this information. And I spoke with a book agent, and a formulation really came through about um, how to bring this information forward. You know, I was very excited about a cookbook, but it turns out that people are really hungry for the science behind this. So that was that was great. Um, so we did include some recipes in Chapter 11, and I couldn't help myself around, you know, how to set up a kitchen and, and talk about those tips for people who were new to a kitchen because I was that person um, years ago where, uh, you know, I, I, I was handy in the kitchen, but I really didn't know how to cook. So the decision to divide it up came from uh, understanding that, that bringing forward some of the information about the gut-brain access and the microbiome is important, and then the common psychiatric conditions that people experience or see, and trying to group them in a way that made sense, and then bringing forward um, the, the research that is available and interpreting it in a way that would make it digestible to the reader so that they would things that they could implement. The most important thing was I felt that my patients coming in and individuals that I was speaking to were very confused by the nutrition edu- nutrition information they were mm. reading online or um, information that they were receiving. And in mental health, there just was this building, uh, growing body of evidence that I could share with individuals to improve their mental well-being. And that, that, that meant a lot for me. So... Um, Dividing it up in a way that someone could pick the book up as a guide, that they could go to chapter six if they needed to, and maybe a family member or a friend would need chapter two, that was perfect. So we explained at the beginning of the book, there's a way of how to use it. Um, we really encourage um, people understanding foods to embrace and foods to avoid, but also that they can understand the connections for themselves, because that I felt was very empowering. If someone understands the connection, they feel that if they want to make a healthy change, they understand why they should be doing it. And in my clinical work, what really makes a difference is when someone feels the difference from a healthy habit change. We can all talk for many hours, but until you actually make a change, you don't start to experience that difference. Um, So dividing it up was really meant to be as a practical guide. And I will share that, you know, it was, it has been quite, um, quite a different experience to launch a book being a first time author um, during a pandemic. And in the US, we launched on August 4th, and in the UK, we launched on September 10th. Um, but one of the things that has come through with people reading it is how helpful it has become as almost a guide to help people eat healthier during the pandemic. So from the initial stages of struggling with what we were eating in the pandemic and the stress and the processed foods because supermarket stores, shelves, certainly in the United States, somewhere empty, and there was a lot of panic about you know, I, I, knew, I know that we weren't going to run out of food, but at the time it was very panicky to see mm. um, supermarket shelves that way. And we know from our um, surveys here that processed food 
sales went up. So what I'm loving about um, what was initially perceived as a disadvantage of launching this book during a pandemic was that people are feeling it to be a guide, which I can only hope um, more people do because it's a way to, it's a way forward to use the book and healthy eating pillars to really fortify mental health and mental well-being, um, irrespective of whether you meet criteria for a diagnosis. Mm. I found it so fascinating how it's split into different psychiatric conditions because I feel like from my research, I've only really seen diet being spoken about um, when it comes to common mental illnesses like depression, anxiety, but seeing it even spoken about with PTSD, I found so uh-huh. eye-opening. Um, the research, yeah, really, really fascinating. So um, let me ask you this. In your book, you talk about diet histories from your patients and um, how you have added this to your consultation style. Um, so you discovered this on your own through your extra training away from uh, medical school and postgraduate training. Could you tell our listeners just how you go about handling a diet history? Because it baffles me that at medical school we're taught about asking about alcohol and smoking within a social history, yet nothing about diet. So if you could just take us through a kind of scenario where you take a diet history from a new patient. Sure. So, you know, a lot of it starts before they actually office obtaining information mm. from them and some work and, and information, I would say, in terms of their whole health history that they provide. It works best when I, um, I'm a consultation liaison trained psychiatrist. That was what I did my fellowship in. So I actually like the integration of medicine and other fields within, um, together with psychiatry. And the reason I say that is often this type of work involves working across specialties and not to be siloed. So I might get a call from gastroenterologist and it's, it's really ideal when they're within the same system and not from, say, a different different state, which is actually impossible to do because of licensing in the United States. But if they um, are, in other words, their care is integrated under one system so that mm. I can access easily medical records and really see what I need to look at or focus on. That's one component. Another component um, is the actual history that they provide, which I've spent a lot of time um, obtaining in the information is very critical because the only way to understand how to make a change is to understand how someone's eating. And very often in in a questionnaire that, that someone calls out, they, it's not as accurate as having a conversation about it. So I think that's particularly important. And where I think things have evolved for me over the time that I've done the work is that it's become much more highly personalized based on the research of the microbiome and understanding that, you know, for example, about a month ago, I was feeding an adult patient who brought in her um, adult daughter with her just to accompany her. And um, while speaking to the, to the mother, it turned out that each of them had the same, but uh, they had the, the opposite reaction to the same healthy food. And I thought about it for a while, and I was trying to figure this out. I thought, wow, this, you know, this has to be that, you know, we have a mostly unique microbiome because they're biologically related. They, but, but in this particular food, they just had a completely opposite reaction. Mm-hmm. So that is just an example of why over the, over the years it's become much more highly personalized to that patient, what they need, what they will eat, um, and then the recommendations. 
Sure. And then in terms of your recommendations, I love reading. I loved reading about how you co-create your recipes with the patients. So, you know, it's very personal and applicable to them based on what they like, what tastes and flavours. So um, is there a patient that sticks out that you can tell us about interesting recipes that you helped create with them and, you know, how you managed to adapt the Mediterranean diet principles to be inclusive to all cultures? Absolutely. So um, I'll start with the the second question first. I think that um, based on some of the, the teaching that I did with medical students, um, I will, will share that uh, when I was teaching a class once, um, a very lovely medical student said to me, you know, I don't understand why all the doctors tell us about the Mediterranean diet, but you know, um, it doesn't apply to, to all cultures because not all cultures eat that food. And I thought that was a great point. So I began mm. talking, but not only with her, but with other students about how we could make these cultural connections. So, for example, you know, chickpeas are chola uh, and Indian food or chickpeas can be made in many different cultures. Or how do you make those connections? Or how do you take the some healthy um, uh, habits from the Mediterranean eating pattern and help people incorporate mm. that. So I've developed a system um, in my clinic of sort of pillars of mental health that we walk people through. And those are sort of the basis. And then we go into the specifics for each food. A patient that really stood out for me was someone who is um, just a wonderful, uh, really a, a business person, a business uh, uh, runs a business with, a, with the rest of her family and had for many years um, struggled with, with depression and anxiety and came to me after completing a lifestyle program, was referred to me, and one of the first things she said to me was, everyone tells me to eat avocados and I have no idea of what to do with them. Um, so I thought that was, that was always stuck with me because walking in, you know, she was this, this really accomplished person and you can never make an assumption like she knew what it was she knew it was healthy but what the heck do I do with it mm. I think that's that's a relevant question when it comes to nutrition and some of the work that we did in, in that really um, helped her over time was that she wanted to in her family her husband uh, did a lot of the cooking because of the because of the, um, the, the way that they worked and she really wanted to be able to be able to prepare foods when her teenage daughters uh, had friends over, or if she wanted to have a have her friends over, and she'd not been able to do that. It was either buying takeout or ordering food from a caterer. And we really walked through um, classes, um, which we did online because where she, where she lived is you know as part of part of the program. Um, walking her through simple recipes, some of which are in the book. Um, and I, I was delighted when she hosted a, uh, a so-called dinner party, and she made from she made her own homemade hummus, which for mm -hmm. her was it was uh, it was a big deal, you know, because she hadn't been someone who was cooking before. She knew how to cook vegetable side dishes. Uh, she actually knew how to work with avocado now. Yeah. And uh, one of my one of my tips for you know sort of a creamy hummus dip is to add a little bit of avocado. Um, so an avocado hum hummus dip, and things like that. To the to the extent that she was able to put on a simple meal for friends and family was a very big. Thing for her and I will tell you her emotional well-being was so much better just with that uh, what might seem to others like a small achievement but it just happened through slow and steady 
um, classes and, and, you know, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to buy for your kitchen. Or she had all of the stuff in the kitchen, but this is what you need to pull out and this is what you need to be using. And even teaching other patients simply how to build a salad should not be taken for granted because someone who can pack a healthy salad, um, and my tip around that is we have these um, lunch bags that you can buy uh, from a company that, that fold down flat and you freeze the whole lunch bag. You might have seen them. And and then when in the morning when you're ready to take your salad to lunch, you pull it up, you put it in your salad, and no matter how, because in Boston we commute quite a bit to get to, to work and um, it remains cool. And so if you have a fridge at work, you can put it in or you can keep it in, in, in that um, lunch bag or for, for most of the day or until your lunch. And teaching someone how to build a healthy salad with you know as many colors of the rainbow in, in from the different vegetables, add some fruit, add nuts and seeds as well, make a simple three-step vinaigrette to, to, that you carry with you or you, you make, you, you know, you're avoiding preservatives and the colorants and additives that are and added sugar in store-bought salad dressing uh, is very empowering because mm. people not only feel more nourished. Um, I had someone who um, started off with, who has diabetes and it had become poorly controlled. And working with her and her diabetologist, um, you know, over time, she was able to lower the amount with, with his help and my coordination with them, lower the amount of insulin she was using. She lost weight and she was eating healthier. It was very simple. She was just eating healthy whole foods mm. and the right foods. Um, and I thought that was exciting for her because she no longer had that uh, drop in her blood sugar where she would run to get, you know, something um, at the snack bar or the vending machine at work. Um, and that was an unhealthy food because because of blood sugars. So Amazing. some of those are just really simple, yeah. healthy changes, but people also have to be consistent. Completely. And um, do you see patients from all walks of life, so with varied socioeconomic status, or is it more people who can afford you? Well, it's all through the hospital. Mm. Um, so I have a very small private practice, and the, that's basically um, referrals through colleagues sure. um, of individuals who don't necessarily or, or can't come into the hospital because of distance. Um, but through the hospital, it's, it, it, it's all based on um, how the referral system works. And it, it really, it, it's not necessarily up to me. We do do, we, one thing we do try to do, though, I will say, yeah, so to answer your question, it's insurance-based in the clinic. So yeah. if someone has, um, you know, the right insurance and the right referral set up. But another part that has become important as the clinic has developed is really the appropriate screening because nutrition can be an interesting – well, I know that nutrition is a very interesting subject, and I know you feel that too. But sometimes, sometimes people are suffering from many different things, and – it may not be that nutrition is, is the cure. They have to have many specialists involved and have almost a coordination of care model. And sometimes nutrition can be seen as uh, a cure to things that it is not. It's one component of a very integrated and functional model. So I think that's where screening becomes important um, to make sure that someone doesn't have, say, an active eating disorder or someone uh, may be suffering with orthorexia and they mm. may have such rigid uh, ways that they they incorporate food in their lives that they may not want to switch that out and that can be a challenge to, to treat. 
And so, of course, you practice allopathic medicine alongside this. Can you tell us a bit about how, when you see a patient, you balance the drugs that you prescribe with the nutritional interventions that you suggest and whether you've managed to get patients onto a lower dose of something because of nutritional interventions and just how those two kind of work side by side? Um, Again, it's very individualized. So with some people, we've been able to work over time and lower the dose of, uh, say, an antidepressant medication. I think that certainly that has also worked for anti-anxiety medications. Um, I might, you know, part of it is is the clinical decision-making on assessing someone also comes down to their level of functioning, um, their level of coping, their level of interest in, in what they want to achieve. Um, when I feel a medication is necessary, I will certainly tell someone that I feel it is. And, you know, it's important to also say that when someone is actively suicidal, manic, psychotic, losing touch with reality, um, you know, so severely depressed, they're not able to get out of bed, that nutrition is part of an intervention plan, but it's not the first line. Mm. You know, they need to be in an emergency room, they need to maybe be hospitalized um, and see their doctor. So it's not obviously the the first step there would not be to see me, but they can always incorporate nutrition from the get-go with their doctors. Um, And then, uh, you know, part of it is is what what I see as being very helpful as individuals who don't necessarily meet criteria for a diagnosis that are still not feeling well. So either a low mood, severe anxiety, but able to function with that um, are some of the very common things that we treat. And I find that those are very, uh, the nutritional interventions and strategies can be very helpful there. Fantastic. So moving on to something that I found very interesting in your book was how you refer to comfort food as a taste addiction and say that eating sugar at comfort foods can almost be a self-medication for people who, for instance, have a psychiatric condition like bipolar or anything else and how it can almost be a physiological sabotage. Could you explain a little bit more around this issue and how you can work with a patient who is engaged with this type of behaviour to perhaps resolve this? Research has shown that um, the way that that our brain responds to sugar is not unlike the way the brain responds to cocaine. So one of the things to understand with with situations where someone is eating a lot of added sugars is that they not only are they enjoying it and craving it, their brain has gotten into that type of habit circuit around being rewarded by that sugary treat or that candy bar or that um, sugar-sweetened beverage. Some of it is I've had individuals try to come off sugar in a sort of detox way on their own and have them precipitate a panic attack and severe anxiety. So some of it is coming off it slowly. Um, Another part of it is finding healthy substitutions to break that cycle of what they're craving and what they're eating. And one of them is is environmental controls because if someone is buying tubs of ice cream, packaged baked goods and cookies Mm -hmm. and storing them in their kitchen, their brain is going to remember that. So it's going to be very hard to walk to the refrigerator and look for blueberries. 
um, because their brain is going to create the ice cream that's in the freezer. So some of it is really helping them work around environmental controls and taking out the things that are unhealthy and bringing in foods that are healthy. But then thinking about, and this is where some of the culinary stuff comes in, thinking about easy ways that they can swap foods that they like. So someone likes a salty pretzel or a salty potato crisp. You know, th- treating them simple things like spinach fries um, made in the oven or kale fries made in the oven 20 minutes with the right type of oil um, and seasonings that they like. They can spice it up. They can put seasonings up there. Up there um, uh, literally can be three ingredients. And you can have a crispy treat that has, you know, um, has a, a flavor that you like instead of a potato chip or mm-hmm. pretzel. Um, and same thing with sweet treats. It's, you know, maybe using more fruit. Now, with fruit, you, one has to pay attention to the, the glycemic index uh, because if someone's struggling with their weight, we don't want them eating tons of high glycemic fruit, but we do want them eating fruit. So they have to split up their servings. They want to eat some low glycemic fruits to start. But, you know, there's, there's a recipe in my book for banana ice cream, and you can make mm-hmm. that as a chocolate flavor. You can add tons of uh, different types of nuts to it to make it fun um, and crunchy toppings that, that, you, that, that you can enjoy, um, like unsweetened uh, coconut flakes, you know, things that make it really fun and interesting where, where you are replacing that tub of ice cream um, with a healthier option that you start to get used to. Mm-hmm. And I'm not suggesting you eat the top of banana ice cream, but I'm, I'm suggesting that you can use that in a healthy portion control way to, to switch out that sweet treat that you are craving. I think that's some of the very important work, and that's why it does require someone to either feel that they can do some of the preparation or have someone help them with it. To Because it does take a little bit of work. It takes a, a work and it takes planning. Mm. It takes meal planning. It takes grocery trip planning and things like that. But I find when people really want to make the change, they start to write those grocery lists and start to do them, you know, slowly and steadily. Absolutely. I think that's so interesting how you're working with your patients around what they like and you're just trying to up the nutritional quality by making them replace it with a healthier version. So, you know, there's not that restriction aspect when people go on diets. This becomes just part of their lifestyle and it's sustainable, which is what I really like. Exactly. And so on to something... Because, because yeah. no one likes to be told what to do. So when you tell people not to do something, it's very hard. But when you say, look at the list of foods you can eat. Yeah. These are the ones you have to avoid, you know, it's it's much easier. They, they, they feel that they can, um, that there's a lot they can eat. And, and they don't feel restricted and they don't feel deprived. Absolutely. You want the fulfillment and empowerment when you're trying to make a huge change rather than that, I, don't, I can't do this. I feel guilty if I do this. So absolutely. And um, so I've been reading quite a while around uh, supplements and, you know, the area of nutraceuticals. So you talk about it a bit in your book. And I just wanted you to tell our audience about when you think the use of supplements is appropriate with psychiatric conditions and how you assess this with your patients. Because, of course, supplements aren't the cheapest things. They are an extra thing to buy. So how do you make these decisions with your patients? My The, the premise of my plan um, in the way that I've practiced it has been whole healthy foods first. So Absolutely. eat the orange, skip the straw-bought orange juice. Um, you know, sort of whole foods, whole health. 
And that's because the store-bought oranges had a ton of added sugar compared to the nutrients, vitamin and fiber in an actual orange. And taking that principle, I think that there are certain situations where someone should discuss a supplement with their doctor. For example, if someone is severely depressed and they've tried certain nutritional strategies that, that may or may not have given the uni uniqueness of each of our microbiomes, um, or mostly unique microbiomes, that they may not have had success. One, one thing to consider, say, a saffron supplement. Um, why? Because saffron as a spice is highly expensive. And um, it is, um, when you look at the studies around saffron, you need more than, say, what would be in a culinary dose. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't cook with it, um, you know, to make Cabrini or a or a risotto or a paella with with um, saffron, but that might be an instance where um, someone could speak to a doctor about using saffron and finding the right supplement, um, and that's because you probably really can't get it in the food dose. But in, in terms of most other things, you can eat a ton of food, the right foods, and feel or see some good emotional benefits. Um, so with supplements, I would say in the United States, they're not FDA regulated. So I ask individuals to really speak to their doctors and um, figure out for the condition that they have is would a supplement be appropriate. And I've listed some in the book. And also the other part of it is, you know, if people can incorporate healthy eating habits and healthy ingredients Technically, we shouldn't even need a multivitamin, mm. but most of us somehow are not quite, have some sort of deficiency in probably how we are eating. So I think the more that we can up our game in terms of our basic eating plans, um, we should start there and then supplement when, if and when appropriate and run it by the doctor. Always say, you know, it's not, not a... Not, not something to be taken lightly when I say discuss with your doctor because a, a grapefruit is a very healthy fruit and yet a grapefruit interacts with a ton of liver enzymes and several medications. So so it's 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 not not a light thing to say discuss with your doctor because he or she is probably going to be able to tell you what those interactions may be. Absolutely. And thank you for that. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on the food obsessed internet age we live in. Um, because, you know, you've got a passion for food, I've got a passion for food, I only have to go on any social media app, they know I love food, and that's what they show me on my feeds, and so I wanted to get your thoughts on why you think it's taken so long for the medical world to catch up to how important food choice is for health, when it's everywhere in our society. I really, I, I, I think that um, in the United States, the lifestyle medicine doctors and functional medicine doctors are, are really way ahead in leading mm. the way around incorporating healthy dietary um, efforts as well as, you know, exercise and movement and multiple other almost uh, integra integrated into healthcare. In terms of the larger medical system, I think we're learning and we know that, it, that we should be incorporating more. As to why it doesn't happen, I wish I could tell you. Um, I wish I had the answers to, to these questions, uh, but I don't. I, I think that we can only hope that the small sectors that are bringing this message forward mm -hmm. and the work of individuals like that will, will help um, others, others you know, learn, learn that a little bit more. Absolutely. And you mentioned that your practice has revolved more and more around the gut microbiome and how everyone has their own personalised 
you know, it's almost like a fingerprint when it comes to uh, their gut microbiome. So where do you think we are in terms of how far we're off from personalized nutrition? I think that we're still a little ways off, but I think we're closer than we've ever been. Mm. Um, and I think that some of the research on, on the gut microbiome and the uniqueness of things like gut memory in um, yo-yo dieting and just explaining how how the gut microbiome is involved in some of that and understanding it, I can only hope that the research, and I know that it will continue in a very robust way to help inform us um, of that. And maybe in that way... Um, you know, other physicians will be um, more more willing or maybe have more time. I mean, the other obvious, very obvious thing to say is that it is, um, you know, hospital-based medicine in the United States is insurance-driven and it's all time-driven. So it's very hard for doctors to do extra than the assessments they're already doing. So time, there isn't always time to do it. So I think it, it requires maybe an overhaul of some of those tenants of how the system runs um, to incorporate greater lifestyle changes. But we know we need it because our obesity rates are so high. Of course, and same in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so where do you see nutritional psychiatry going over the next 10 years? I would, I would hope um, in a uh, fast forward and very integrated way where it can be say components of our internal medicine practices, um, primary care here. Um, and I would also hope that it, it can become a component of um, how doctors are speaking to their, their patients in mental health in a very structured way. And is there any more for us to look out for besides your wonderful book? I know that you've got a website and do you have any other upcoming things that you'd like to share? I'm actually, um, so my, my uh, I, I would love people to follow us on social media, which is at D-R-U-M-A-N-A-I-D-O-O, which is at Dr. Uma Naidu. Um, I'm going to be um, actually presenting in the UK, but virtually <laughs> For, uh, for the Alzheimer's Day on Monday, um, September 21st, and um, for a couple of, couple of different events, actually. So uh, if you follow me on social media, you will get updates about all of those. And, um, you know, we just really slowly try and get the word out about my book. We were honored to be named a uh, best-selling book in Canada last week. So we were excited about that. Congrats. And, yeah, uh, you know, we're just, we just trying our best during a pandemic to help people <laughs> learn about the book. So Absolutely. And any other useful resources that you can recommend to our listeners who are passionate about the world of food and mood and nutritional psychiatry? I've spoken about... Felice's work at mm-hmm, Food and Mood mm-hmm. Center before, but any others that you? Um, so I, uh, we're actually, uh, hopefully in the next in the next half year, we'll be able to publish the the, the text through the American Psychiatric Association, um, probably by the spring of next year. I hope that we'll be able to get it together. So we'll be publishing a text. Um, which is sort of a handbook of nutritional psychiatry. And I think, I hope that that will be useful to people. Um, Certainly we are busy editing and updating that right now. So that's for clinicians? That would be for clinicians. um, But I think if if a person is looking for good nutrition information, a source that I like to use is the nutrition source at the Harvard School 
um, Harvard TH School of um, Harvard TH Chan School of Public Health, and that's easily available on the web and has excellent resources if you just want to look up a portion size, if you want to look up what a glycemic index is. That that that's always good to good to have. Great. And one last question, which I ask every guest who comes on the podcast, because I assume we all love food. And so what would be your last supper? So very tragically, God forbid, if you had one day, if you had one day left to live, and you could only have one starter, main and dessert to choose, what would they be? One of each, you mean, or just one food? Yeah, no, so a whole meal, so start and main and dessert. Oh, that's a tough one, Uh, because I like too many things. Um, (laughs) I would, um, I think it would definitely be something with tons of spice in it, so I definitely think something like a, um, for an appetizer, uh, maybe a a way that I've tried to make a um, healthy, so, so in South, South India, they make something called a vada that is made with lentils, mm-hmm. so it's super healthy, but it's usually deep fried. So I've been working on this recipe to try to use an air fryer to make my grandmother's oh, yeah. recipe. <laughs> That's so... It's, it's, so in, it's, so in, it's so in progress. Uh, That's so dedicated. Little, you know, I love it. it exactly. It, it's usually made in a certain, certain way, but I'm trying to make a healthy version of that. And then uh, my mom makes a very delicious made from scratch, scratch paneer curry from, you mm. know, fresh, healthy whole milk. Um, and always a grass grass smoke fed option, um, but she also uses tons of spices in it and tamarind and mm. vegetables. So it's you know it's it's really interesting. And she pairs it with um, a, a dal sort of made from split pigeon peas and adds spinach greens into that. So you know it has Indian spices, it has your greens, it has as healthy plant-based sources of protein um that i think would definitely be part of it and she usually makes a wonderful salad which i try to try to emulate but it's more for a of a sambal kind of between a sambal and a salad and for dessert i guess it would be um this chocolate mousse uh, recipe that i've been developing um which which has super dark extra dark chocolate rich in flavonols um and different um, soft fruit to actually my, my when I've made it, it whips up like a chocolate mousse. Oh, yeah. So if I could, if I could, if I could have that, that would be awesome. Wow, honestly, that sounds delicious. <laughs> really inventive stuff. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I hope to see a lot more amazing work coming from you over the next few years. I'd love to be in touch. Thanks so much for hosting me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Wow. Another wonderful guest. Stay tuned for new episodes on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. Nutritank is an award-winning, innovative information hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine, with a current mission to improve nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within medical training nationwide. Nutritank aims to empower healthcare professionals and members of the public to improve their health and well-being through diet and lifestyle modifications. Visit Nutritank.com for our membership packages, follow us on social media and join our community. Bye for now. Please note that this podcast aims to educate and not to replace healthcare professionals' advice, so please continue to seek help from your nutritionists, your dietitians, and your doctors. Thank you.